Since the day she gave me that coveted final rose, my wife, Trista Sutter, has made me a better person. If she can get me to know better, to do better, and to just all around be better, then I'm sure she can do it for you too. You're listening to Better Etc. with my wife and your host, Trista Sutter. Hey everybody, this is Trista and you're listening to episode 13 of the Better Etc. podcast. Today's conversation is a heavy one. It's an important one, but a really heavy one. Today, I discuss sex trafficking with a survivor. And my hope is that you don't shy away from our chat because it's heavy. We all need to hear it, especially in this country. We all need to hear that what my incredibly brave and inspiring guest, Elizabeth Frazier, experienced is happening in the wealthy suburbs. This story is one that Elizabeth reached out to me to tell. She believes that the more she shares, the more she is able to reclaim her power. And I am so honored to be able to help her with that. After all, we can only acknowledge something and actively make positive changes if we are aware. And today, what I'm asking you to be aware of, or more aware of, is human trafficking, a form of modern-day slavery. We get into what her life looked like during the over 20 years she was trafficked, how her parents manipulated her, yes, I said her parents, and how they manipulated her relationships. We talk about the people who helped her, even though they still may not know that they helped her, how she coped then, and what has helped her as an adult, the possible signs to look for when someone is being sold for sex and pornography, and how we can fight back. This conversation is not meant in any way to be salacious. It took place to give her a platform in hopes of educating us, protecting us and our children, and helping survivors find hope and peace which she is also doing through a company she founded called Hero Bands. Anyone who wears one of her beautiful bracelets will be reminded of their strength and empowered to fight for themselves and to heal. I got chills hearing about the incredibly special bands she donates, and I have a feeling that you will too. So thank you for being brave enough to listen and for joining me in being part of the ripples of solutions that hopefully will happen by having these conversations. And if you're listening now and you need help or you suspect that someone else does, please call the National Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888. Here we go. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. For people out there, I wanted to give a little background at how we kind of found each other, which I think was actually kind of a fun story. It was just meant to be, you know, it was meant to be for us to, to meet. So Colin Karchner is an incredible human who unfortunately passed away. I think in October, I was supposed to interview him three days or two days after he passed. And in order to prep for his interview, I had been listening to his podcast and you appeared on his podcast. And I thought to myself, wow, What an incredible story of perseverance, of being a survivor. And you just inspire me in terms of how strong you are, how much you've been through, and how you are able to continue your life in love, you know, and love on the people who are part of your personal 
life, of course, but also all the people out there who are also survivors. So Elizabeth actually reached out to me on Instagram and asked if I would share this video for it was, was it National Human Trafficking Day or International? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Awareness right. Day. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so you reached out to me on Instagram and I was like, wow, this is weird because I feel like I know her. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was because I started following you on Hero Bands after Colin's interview with you because I was just so drawn to your story and because I wanted you to be a guest on my podcast. So I I'm I'm just so thankful that our paths crossed again and you reached out because I think you have such a powerful story. So thank you so much for being here again. Yeah. No, thank you for using your platform to bring hope and awareness to other people. That's how we make a change. So I just appreciate people willing to go those uncomfortable places and have have hard discussions. So Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because I really want to thank everyone for listening because it is a heavy conversation, especially for you, especially for people out there who are triggered by it, who have been through, mm -hmm. through their own abuse and and who are empaths, you know, I, I believe that you're an empath. I'm an empath. I feel mm -hmm. like anyone who feels deeply for other people, it's hard. But I think that you're right. We have to have these conversations in order for change to happen. Actually, I wrote down a quote that I heard you say on one of your other interviews. You said, you can only make a change if you know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And, oh, I so believe that. That is actually a big reason why I'm doing this podcast because I want to make a positive change in the world, regardless of what the conversation is about. You know, I had Rachel Lindsay on, who was the first black bachelorette, and we talked about racial injustice and you talking about abuse. Like I, until we know what the problem is, we really can't make a change in ourselves, in our communities or in our worlds. So yeah. that's huge. So to you and anyone else out there who shares their stories, thank you so much for opening our eyes to, to these really difficult things and sharing your story so that all of us can learn and we can all help and we can all, we can actually all help heal, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I heard Colin's interview, yes, sex trafficking, I feel like has been a big topic of conversation lately, recently, like in the last, I don't know, year or so, or maybe even less than that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I keep seeing it popping up and, and bringing awareness to it. But I really, honestly, I'm going to call myself ignorant. I feel like I was ignorant. I, I did not truly understand until I heard your story. I knew it was about abuse. I knew it was about exploitation, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the extent of it. So I think that information is power and, mm. and I don't want anyone listening today. And I don't also, I, I don't want you to feel this. So if there's mm. any point in time where you do not feel comfortable, you just say the word and we will cut that conversation. So I would like first for you to set the scene on where you grew up. Like what were, what was your home life like? What was your community like? And your family life, like how many siblings you have, all, all of the basics mm -hmm. on just how you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in a really nice neighborhood, actually, in Utah. 
there's nine kids in my family. I am the youngest of nine. So I have, I know it's unbelievable. Especially I told you this last night when we were talking, but growing up, I was an only child. So nine children to me is just, wow, unbelievable. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No. So I've got seven brothers and one sister and we grew up in a really wealthy area and looked like we had just this perfect life and we would do normal life things. We would go to school. We would take vacations. We would play sports. We just did normal, normal looking life. So nobody really would have had a clue what was going on behind the scenes. And I think that's partly what's so scary is that it is so well hidden by a lot of people that, that do this. And you guys attended church, correct? We, we did. Yeah. We were Christians. Like you were a Christian family, a good Christian family whose kids all went to Mm -hmm. school and were you at public school? Were you at private school? Yeah. Public school. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Public school. Okay. So just like anyone else in the suburbs of Utah. And I think that's important to note because out of this information gathering that I'm doing to be more informed and not be ignorant of these issues, I think everyone needs to know that this can happen anywhere. 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 Yeah. It's not a third world problem. No. It is very much our problem. Yes, very much our problem. Okay, before we get into your story, I would love if you could just talk about what exactly is sex trafficking for the people out there who were like me and really are kind of hearing it for the first time or just not truly understanding what it is. So sex trafficking, I don't know the official definition, but it is selling for what I've gathered and learned and experienced is selling another person for or money or goods or trade. So having control over somebody enough to sell them to another human being for sexual acts. And I would assume that most sex trafficking is with children who are underage, correct? I don't know, but that is huge, is is child trafficking, child mm-hmm. sex trafficking. And a lot of that stems and starts with pornography, unfortunately. And so people get addicted to pornography and then... And and part of the problem with pornography is that I had to participate in pornography as a child. And I didn't know that's what it was, but, and even as an adult. And so people watching pornography think, oh, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But reality is they're hurting a lot more than themselves. And they're feeding the demand for trafficking, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so for me to sit there and have somebody say, oh, I'm not hurting anybody but myself by watching this. I'm like, there is no way you can guarantee me that that person wants to be there. There's no possible way. They can look like they want to be there. They can act like they want to be there. But I have experience there and I did not want to be there. And I had to pretend like I did. And so I think that fuels trafficking a lot. And, you know, you can get so numb to pornography that you end up starting to go to child pornography. And then it kind of, you know, spins another web that I think is, is way more damaging than people even realize, unfortunately. For sure, because I would assume most of those girls just think that it's normal and are are just doing it because they feel like the people who are, quote unquote, helping them mm-hmm. love I them. I thought it was normal. Right. Yeah, I thought it was normal. I didn't realize until much, much later how abnormal it was. And I thought I was special and I thought I was doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, initially. So 
Oh, it just breaks my heart. Oh, okay. So, so you say when you're, when you're talking about, you thought you were doing the right thing. So what is your first memory and not necessarily the first memory of when you knew you were being abused, but that first memory of participating in this abuse? So I was four. That's my earliest memory. And honestly, I, I know it happened before that because at four, I remember knowing what to do. Um, I didn't have to be really told exactly which acts to perform. And so, but my earliest memory is four. Mm. And I just remember pulling up to a hotel and my mom drove me and I got out and knew which door to knock on and went in the door and had to, had to perform sexual acts on somebody else and then came out with an envelope of money and gave it to my mom and we drove home. When I hear that as an adult about somebody else, it hurts me to my core. Mm -hmm. And I have cried and cried over people's stories that they've shared with me because I hurt for them. But I didn't know at that point that that was wrong or scary or not okay. So I went through a lot of years being okay with what was happening and thinking I was special because that's what I was told. Mm -hmm. And when you're told that, by your parents, you believe them because they're your parents and they're supposed to tell you the truth. So I did think I was special for a long time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they tell me don't share with anybody because if they know you're special, they're not going to want to be your friend because they're not special as you, you know? And so I wanted to have friends and be normal. And, and so I didn't tell anybody for so long. So it's really interesting to me. You shared a few websites with me about where I could get more information. And one of them is called Aim Free. It's aimfree.org. And on their homepage, it says girls as young as seven years old are being sold for sex every night. You were being sold that you remember as early Mm -hmm. as four years old. Mm -hmm. Gosh, and thinking about my kids when they were four, that you knew what to do means that they had been grooming you for a while, like it was embedded into who Mm -hmm. you were growing up to be. When I say they, it was your parents, correct? Was there anyone else involved in this to your knowledge? I mean, obviously the people that were participating and that were purchasing time with you, but is there anyone else that was involved on that side of it, on your parents' side of it, who were forcing you to do these things? I'm sure there were, because there were several occasions that at night that I would meet and there would be other girls with me. Oh, so it was a bigger group, a larger draw for, for people. So I know that there were, and maybe I did meet them and I just don't know because some of them were clients, Mm -hmm. but my, my biggest experience of seeing who was behind it was my parents, but I know there were others. I didn't even know to ask this until now, but did you ever talk to those girls? Like, did you ever have the opportunity Or did you ever get the vibe that they felt like they didn't want to be there as well? Was there any connection there between you? I was older when Mm -hmm. when that started happening. And when I say older, I mean 15, 16. And so we we started recognizing each other Mm -hmm. and we could see the hurt in each other's eyes, but we were never in a place that we could ever talk. Yeah. And I think even if we had been, I don't know if we would have because we wouldn't have known what to say to each other, honestly. And probably were, you were scared to say anything, yeah. I would assume. Yeah. yeah, we could just look at each other and, and see each other yeah. in a different way, you know. So, Do you still have connection to those people? No, I don't even know their names. Oh, gosh. 
but I could, I can still see their faces and it haunts me. Yeah. It haunts me. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. So what would a normal day look like? Like from an outsider's perspective, I'd love to know what it looked like to them. Like you just, you went to school, you went home, you played your sports. Did you ever hang out with friends? Like what was your normal day like? Yeah. So when I, when I just call them jobs, cause I don't know what else to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it was weekly. Sometimes it was a little more sporadic. It kind of depended on school and if it was summer or, you know, different activities that we had, but normal days I'd get up and I'd go to school and come home and have a snack and do some homework. And I started playing soccer when I was a little older. And so I'd have practice sometimes and very normal usually wasn't until night that it was abnormal. Or sometimes I would get picked up from school for a lunch date with my dad and I'd have something then. But usually it was just a very normal looking life. And even with the lunch dates, I mean, everyone was like, oh, you're so lucky. Your dad picks you up and takes you out to lunch. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm so lucky, you know. At that point, did you realize that what was happening was wrong? No, because I I knew I didn't like it, Mm -hmm. but I also knew that my dad thought I was special and I loved feeling like his little girl. And, you know, my mom would tell me I was her best friend and I loved hearing that I was her best friend, you know? So it was very manipulated in a way that, and I was just born with this heart that loves people. And I think they use that against me a lot because if I knew somebody else was going to get hurt, I would jump in a second and take their hurt for them. Yeah. So after I started realizing want to do this and that this was wrong is when they would say, well, if you don't, then so-and-so is going to get hurt or have to do this or this. And and I was like, it wasn't worth it to me. I was used to doing this and it wasn't as big of a deal for me. And so I would just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. And how long did this go on? So you say that you remember from four, so it could have been earlier than four, but How long after that, how long did it continue? It didn't stop till I was 23. I was married. I had, I had one son Mm -hmm. and we moved out of state at that point. And right when we moved out of state, I felt safer because I get, I get a lot of people that judge me for continuing after I was married, but my husband's life was threatened. My son's life was threatened and I believe that they are capable of such awful things that it wasn't worth it to me to jeopardize that. So until we moved out of state and I felt distance enough, I wrote a letter and said, I want no contact. And if I see or hear from you, then I'm just going to call the police. And that's when I really started to heal and work through everything that had happened. I mean, it just makes me so angry that anyone could be judgmental of you. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm just so sorry that you have ever felt judgment for this. I'd like to know when you first realized that it might not be how other families interacted, that this was not quote unquote normal. I hate calling it abnormal because it's your normal. And it was difficult, you know, very difficult, I'm sure. But I don't look at it as, I don't know, abnormal. Is that weird? Is that weird of me to say? Like, I, it was normal to me. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you realize that 
the way that you were being raised and the way that your what your parents were having you do was not what other children were doing. You know, I, I've thought about this a lot and had different instances that I think maybe was my first time remembering, but I think it was more gradual. And I talk about my fifth grade teacher every time I speak, because mm-hmm. that was the first time I ever felt safe. And I didn't even know I hadn't felt safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I had felt safe, but with her was the first time I felt the difference. And so I think starting then, mm-hmm. I knew what I was looking for. And I knew what I wanted to be around. At that point, you realized what you were missing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I don't think it wasn't until, and I do get a little bit embarrassed about this, but it wasn't until probably high school that I really, it really hit me that how wrong this was. And I had a, I had an acquaintance. He wasn't a close friend, but a a friend passed away in a car accident. And I, I didn't know how to cope. And I had, I realized how much self-hate I had Mm -hmm. and how much pain I felt that I didn't know what to do with. And I started cutting and I started doing a lot of self-harm. And that's when I started realizing, you know what? I don't know how to handle life. Mm -hmm. Why, why don't I know how to handle life? And I kind of started figuring out what it was and learning about it in classes and just kind of having a few aha moments of, man, this is not okay. Right. And did you ever talk about the feeling not okay with your siblings? Like, did that ever come up in conversation or, or with friends that you might've had from school? Like I'm feeling this way and I don't know if that's, if it's right or wrong. Like, did it ever come up in conversation or were you, were you constantly living in a state of fear because of what your parents had told you about Mm -hmm. talking about it? I was in a state of fear. But I also started self-harm and I started cutting my arms in the middle of summer and, and my legs and anything I could do. And so it's a harder to hide, but I still tried to hide it. I would wear long, long sleeves and would get asked, aren't you hot? You know, I'd get, yeah. people started realizing that I wasn't okay. And so um, my parents actually got me in therapy with somebody that they knew and kind of had in their back pocket. But I think it was a way for them to look like good parents you know like my mom would come with me to almost every appointment and she'd have her own appointment right after my appointment a lot of the time and so I think I was on a very tight leash with this person that they had already vetted out and gone to and like kind of I think prepped Mm -hmm. but outwardly it looked like they were getting me help so they looked like good parents yeah she's really struggling um, and I think they said they, they were telling people I had been abused by somebody or something. They were just making up a bunch of stories that I didn't know they were saying mm-hmm. to people until years later, but still trying to look like these helpful, protective parents. Right. So was that relationship between you and your parents something where you were constantly afraid of them or did you ever feel safe with them? Did you have a quote unquote good relationship with them because you believed that they loved you and they were doing this because they thought you were special and your mom was your best friend. Yeah. Is that what that, what the grooming looks like or looked like in your, in your experience? In my experience. Yes. It was very, 
tricky because I did love them and felt like there were times they loved me and had somewhat of a relationship. But as I've looked back as an adult, I really was mostly treated well when I was performing well. Mm. And when I was getting requests from some of my jobs to have repeat customers, that's when I felt the most loved and seen by them. If they had heard I had done a good job or they were, you know, big tippers or, you know, things like that. And I didn't realize that or put that together initially. So I did think we had a good relationship and we were close and friends and we'd hang out and just do regular family mom and dad stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. which we did, but it it wasn't real. Well, I I mean, hindsight's 2020, of course, but Right. right. And I'm sure once you get into junior high, middle school, high school, and you start talking about, at least now, I feel like they have, you know, this, the sex Mm -hmm. classes and they, and they talk Mm -hmm. to kids. Was that something that was happening? And, and when they would talk about it in school, what were your, what was your mind going through? What were you going through in those classes? I don't remember it in middle school, but I remember it in high school and I was probably a junior that I remember. And I remember like exactly where I was sitting and watching our teacher talk about it. And it was, I, I played soccer in, in high school and it was the soccer coach that was teaching the class. And so it was just, I just sunk in my seat and I actually went somewhere else in my mind and wasn't even mm-hmm. basically coherent to what he was talking about. Cause I would get triggered by it so quickly that I couldn't keep my mind there or I would have a complete come apart. Yeah. Is that one of the ways that you coped personally mm-hmm. is is that that's called compartmentalization, right? Yeah. And I would put my experiences in my mind in these boxes and like put them on a shelf and like leave them with the lid on. And sometimes I'd have to go, you know, the, I'd have to dump the box out during therapy and really sort through it, but I just would put it away and not yeah. have it exist as much as I could. Oh, I just, I just can't imagine. Do you remember the dialogue you had with your parents? I mean, I know that you said they would say that you are special. And once you knew that it was abuse, like it was Mm -hmm. titled abuse or what other people would think of as abuse, Mm -hmm. what would they tell you Mm -hmm. in order to get you to continue to perform and stay connected to you because, you know, so many kids, I feel like rebel against their parents. I mean, mine Mm -hmm. are starting to, I have an 11 and a 13 year old and, Mm -hmm. you know, in different ways they'll rebel and, and get mad Mm -hmm. and, um, be like, no, you know, I'm not doing this because it's stupid or I don't want to, or whatever. How did they keep that connection so strong when I, I wonder if you were ever angry once you realized that it was abuse and you were being taken advantage of when that, once that recognition happened in your mind, Mm -hmm. how was that relationship with your parents? Did it stay connected? Were there any moments of anger where you did rebel and what did they do? How did you deal with that recognition? Honestly, I, I am not an angry person. I mean, I have, I have a lot of hurt and a mm-hmm. lot of sadness and that's usually what I, what I felt. And, and I remember the first time I said even like, well, I don't really want to, I, I was still very submissive and never openly angry or upset or like, I'm not doing that. Forget it. Like mm-hmm. ever. So yeah. I don't really 
don't really want to do that. And that's when it shifted into, well, then somebody you love is going to get hurt. Got it. And so that's when I was like, okay, well, then let's go get in the car. Yeah. You know, because I, I didn't, it was, yeah. So I do remember that, but I never really was angry, which Got is it. surprising to me. But then I look back and I'm still just not an angry person in general. So yeah. I think I'm just lucky in that regard. No, I think, I think that's a great way to look at it. Again, it just breaks my heart. Okay, so it went on until you were 23. Now tell me yeah. about, well, when did you meet your husband? I met him when I was 20. And I think this was from, from another interview. I don't believe you've mentioned it, but when your parents knew you had friends, they would interrupt or not allow you to have friends they would allow you to have friends, but they would control that relationship in that they would tell the person, like pull the person aside and say, I've heard this in another interview, but I'd love for you to tell the story. Yeah. This was more as an adult and in, in high school, but they'd pull them aside and say, Hey, you know, she's really struggling. This is what you kind of look for. And if she starts any of these behavior or starts talking about any of these things, you need to let us know right away so we can get her help. I mean, that makes me want to cry. Just that kind of outright manipulation. And I didn't know they were doing that. Like I didn't know until many years later that they had even pulled anybody aside to tell them that. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did you, you feel know. when you found that out? Embarrassed, but also at the same time, glad I didn't say anything to that person. Cause mm. I had as a child said something small to somebody and they go to your parents and say, Hey, she's saying this, I'm really worried about her. And then I would be in more trouble because your parents are supposed to trust, you know, take care of you. And so they would go to my parents thinking I would get help. Mm -hmm. And instead I would get punished for speaking. So that didn't happen often, but I was really glad I hadn't said something to those friends as an adult, because I was worried that, you know, something could worse could have happened if I had. Right. Okay. So you met your husband, but your Mm -hmm. parents didn't know him. Correct. Right. Yeah. So do you think that is one of the main reasons why you guys were able to like solidify a relationship? Because if they had known him, do you think they would have said something and then would have blocked that relationship as well? Like, I bet you thank your lucky stars that, yeah. you know, you guys met in the way that you did all the time. Mm-hmm. I do. And and I'm, I actually think, cause he, my husband didn't know what was going on when we got married. He didn't mm-hmm. know until right before we moved away. And so I think they did try to talk to him a few times and he's kind of, he's the most incredible human in existence. And I think he, if somebody tells him to do something, sometimes he doesn't want to do it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. as far as adults go, like his, like, I know he was that way sometimes with his parents. And so with my parents, if they told him, Hey, you need to do this with her, he's going to be like, but very kind and gentle. And they probably thought they probably thought they had more control over him than they did. Cause he's like, I'm not going to do that. But mm-hmm. so I was more protected than him than I even realized uh, because of that. And so was this also, you mentioned your fifth grade teacher. Was this also a relationship, mm-hmm. like one of the, maybe the second relationship after her? I don't know. Were there other relationships where you felt safe or was this the next relationship where you felt truly safe? No, there was, there was a couple others. One lady lived down this, down the street, the street over, and I'd go visit her. She was a mother figure and she just, she had lots of kids and she always made me feel like I was the most important at that moment when I was with her always. 
and she knew I was struggling, but she never, I never felt judged or, or anything. So I feel like I had little spotty relationships like that throughout my whole growing up, which honestly is probably what kept me alive because I knew it was out there and I knew I could find it eventually. So that is what I felt with him. I just felt instantly safe mm. and, and seen. Um, and he didn't have to do anything to keep me safe. I just knew he's a safe person and that's all I really needed. He would protect you. Yeah. Yeah. And that isn't that the best feeling to me? It is. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure with everything that you've yeah. been through, that's got to be pretty high up there. Hey, everybody, I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I want to talk about how it was to confront them. And when you met your husband, you get married, you feel safe. When did you decide, I've had enough, I'm done, I'm done being treated this way, I want to focus on my relationship with my husband because he shows me unconditional love and safety and I want to focus on this relationship. When did you decide that enough was enough? And, and how did you end the abuse with your parents? So I tried at different times to stop doing the things they told me and, and realized quickly that it ended up being more damage for me in the long run. So I continued until we moved to California, which was we had been married three years. And so let's see, it was 2008, I believe. And then I confronted them. That's when I wrote the letter and said, I'm not going to have any contact with any of you. You wrote them a letter. That was how you uh -huh. ended it. Uh -huh. That's how I ended it. Yep. Wrote them a letter. Was this something that you came to the decision just yourself or did your husband help you in that decision? Yeah. My husband helped me right when we moved here. We tried doing limited contact. I was still very fearful, but after just a couple months, we realized it wasn't working and they still, they had too much of a grasp on me that we both decided together to write it. And we both wrote it together and sent it together and we're very together. Mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, it wasn't until, let's see, it was probably seven, probably eight years ago that I confronted them face to face. And I went with my husband and I was worried I was going to feel wanted and missed. And I thought they were going to put on this front and I would miss that because I've always dreamed of having this family that didn't exist, but I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And I missed having a mom that could take care of me when I had babies. And I, I, it was really hard and is still really hard. Yeah. But when I went, they were really cold and I was with my husband, we went together and, and I told them, I know the awful things that you did to me. And I want you to know, I forgive you because I'm not letting go of this and I need to heal. So I, I did it for more of a selfish reason to forgive them. And you know what? It did. It helped. And I felt ready to genuinely forgive them. And it didn't mean I wanted them in my life. It didn't mean I wanted them to meet my children, which they still have not. They, they haven't. Met my, they met my oldest because we moved away when he was one, but mm -hmm. they haven't met my other kids. And I've got five. That's a lot of kids. So, I'd say <laughs> a lot of kids. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they haven't, they haven't met them. I haven't spoken to them since. And I've been speaking out publicly and bringing awareness for the last four and a half years. 
So yeah, that's kind of the path of talking to them. Yeah. And did you feel afterwards, you know, oftentimes people say that I'm not forgiving you for you. I'm forgiving you for me to take back that power. Did you feel that the strength of that power? Yeah, I did. Good. And do you still feel that way? I do. And and they didn't deny anything and they didn't confirm anything. They just kind of sat there and took it and mm-hmm. we got up and, and left. But I still feel very empowered by being able to do that and and not looking back after. As you should. As you should. I think that that's a, such a huge lesson to anyone out there who's going through any kind of hurt or abuse is, you know, by forgiving, you take your power yeah. back they have control of my hurt if I don't mm-hmm. let go of that. And I didn't want them to have any more control or power. No. You know, I wanted them to not have any more satisfaction in knowing I hurt. I was done. So I know you're not an angry person, mm-hmm. but did you ever feel like you wanted to press charges? Did you, after, th- this is after you've confronted them, were there any repercussions? Were there any consequences for them? at all? Was there, is the community still supportive of them? Like how, how is their life now? Mm-hmm. Because I, I believe they're still living where you grew up. As we talked last night, they're still in contact with a handful of your siblings. And it's amazing mm-hmm. that I can say a handful because there, there's nine of so, you. <laughs> so many. Yes. But yes, yes. so they're still in contact with some of them, was there any repercussion for them? Were there any consequences at all? And how does that make you feel if there weren't? There, there have not been any legal implications, um, if that's the right word, for them. Mm-hmm. I feel like the most I can do at this point is to just bring awareness mm-hmm. and hope that people see my face and know what kind of people they truly are and that people can protect their children. Yeah. Or their children's friends, you know, be able to just be that safe place for people because I have found peace and I have let everybody that I possibly can know how unsafe my parents are, Mm -hmm. but I I have, they've, they've not had any legal action um, that's been able to happen because of it. It's been too long. And I think that's so powerful as well. Like the fact that you have found peace in it and you don't choose to focus on the negative, if you will, to not focus on vengeance and actually focus on yourself and Mm -hmm. your story and your healing in order to be the best mom and the best wife and the best friend that you can be. Yeah. Well, I have a better life than I ever imagined. Even Aww. as a kid, I imagined my perfect life and I really do have more than I ever thought. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that to take away from my joy. No. And I don't want it to take away from my kids' joys. You know, yeah. it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're right. Life's too short. You're so right. I do want to go back because I really wanted to cover this. We've talked about how you coped back then. I would love to know how you cope now because it didn't just go away no everything that happened to you it's still I'm sure part of your memories and 
And is it difficult for you to this day? And how do you cope with, with those memories and, and the trauma that you experienced? It, it comes in waves and it still definitely does affect my life. And I have nightmares and I have flashbacks and it's really painful a lot of the time. And I've, I've often wanted that to just disappear. But I also realize I have a friend that I met that went through something horrible and she doesn't have the flashbacks or the nightmares. Mm. And, and she wishes she did in a sense, cause she has people ask her how she copes. And she's like, I don't have, I don't have anything to tell them. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no tools and she feels less connected, I think to people because of that. And so I can connect to people and see their hurt and know what they're going through. And I went to therapy and, and honestly, my, I'm a big pro therapy person, Oh yeah, but I think you need to find the right therapist. Mm-hmm. And I went to probably, I'm not exaggerating 10 different therapists until I found the one that I instantly knew I feel comfortable with this person knowing and being able to say the things I need to. Cause if you just go and you're not with the right person, it's a waste mm-hmm. and it makes you not go anywhere. And right. so finding the right person is huge. So important. I think, I thank you so much for saying that because therapy comes up. I feel like in every podcast I do every single mm-hmm. one, no matter what the subject is, I swear mm-hmm. everyone recommends therapy and actually better help is uh, one of our sponsors. And I've, mm-hmm. I've never participated in therapy. I was a psychology minor in college. So I learned mm-hmm. about therapy, but I, I just started it. And I think that's so, so, so true and so powerful that you really, truly have to continue the work. And if it's not, Mm -hmm. if it's feeling like it's, you're being forced in any way, or it, you know, it just doesn't feel right, then look for another therapist. Just keep going until you find someone you feel safe with and connected to and able to share your story. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, therapy is hard. It's not like you're going to love doing it, but as you feel like you're in a safe place, it's worth it. So yes, that was something that really helped me was therapy and Um, still does and still does. I actually hadn't gone for a long time and I just picked it back up a few weeks ago. Mm, So great. Music actually really helps me. Mm. Um, and lyrics to songs when I was, when I was growing up, like in middle school and high school, Kelly Clarkson was my hero Mm, because the lyrics to her songs really resonated and I didn't feel alone in Mm -hmm. it. So any way you can find that you don't feel alone and even still her music like resonates to me. I mean, just find some kind of music that resonates for Mm -hmm. you. Um, That's helpful. My go-to on really bad nights Mm. is I order food, a pizza and or something. And I go in my bed and I turn on some show that's just lighthearted and happy. And I watch it while my husband takes care of the kids and does dinner and bedtime. And I just need that time and that space for myself. And Mm so I think learning about yourself, anybody that's going through hard times, I think they lose themselves. And so I think reconnecting and finding yourself and what you enjoy and what your needs are is, is a huge thing to help. Huge. Oh, I love that you just said that. Okay, so I would love to know for the people out there who are questioning whether 
someone they know is experiencing something similar. What are are the signs that you would say, if any, that you felt like someone could have been aware that something was wrong and could they have done anything to help? I know that you have said that the fear that your parents instilled in you in terms of they would hurt someone else if you told someone, would there have been any way for someone to help you? And even if it's not you, because I know you work a lot with an organization called Operation Underground mm-hmm. Railroad. Yeah, yeah, Operation Underground Railroad, right. So I know that they they help rescue kids. And I so I would love to hear your personal experience, but also if if you don't feel like anyone could have done anything, now I'd like for you to talk about what you know based on your work with Operation Underground Railroad, if you have learned that there are things that people could do if they ever think that abuse is happening. Yeah, I I don't think anybody could have done anything for me. I think what people did was love me and have a safe place for me, like Mm. my teacher and that other lady. And I think that's the most that anybody could have done for me, Got it. which is a big step to do for anybody, really just be a safe place for kids. You have no idea how huge that can be in their life. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a big deal. So talking about, you know, other people that might be in different situations, um, different things to look out for would be Sometimes kids will show up with things that you didn't, that nobody knows how they bought them, you know, nice, nice phones, nice clothes, things that cost money that they don't know where they're getting the money from Mm. making friends that are much older than, than they are is another kind of red flag. Social media is a way that, that teens get hooked by somebody that doesn't really know who they are and pretends to be their friend and things like that. And and so I would say monitor your children's social media accounts carefully. Or even internet usage. I know that my kids don't have yeah, social and, media yeah. and um, yeah. my son plays video games and you know, there's right there's exactly. options to chat with other people. And I'm like, yeah, no, you can, yep. we set the settings to chat with friends, you know, that's it. Right. Um, so yep. I think, you know, anything internet related for sure. I think it's really important for parents to be on top of. Yeah. My kids don't have social media accounts either. And I don't think they will. Mm -hmm. It's hard because you want your kids to learn the responsibility of having things when it's time, but also I would do anything to protect my kids. Right. And I think being aware of pornography being such a big feed into trafficking, I think just having opened and honest dialogues with the people in our life it doesn't have to be just kids, just the people in our life mm-hmm. to have them second guess some of the choices that they're making can help with, with that demand. So those are a few specific takeaways that I think are, are helpful to know. Yes. Right. Yes. I think I want obviously for this to help, you know, make positive change. And I, I think just knowing some of the signs to look for mm-hmm. is important. You brought up your kids. Do your kids know about this abuse? They do. My older ones know more than the younger ones, Mm -hmm. Um, but they know that my family's not safe because they don't even have grandparents, you know, 
and very few cousins and things like that. So they do know that it's an unsafe thing. And, and my older ones know a lot more than the younger ones. So I just have to, and I always tell them, I'm very honest with them. If they have any questions, they can come talk to me and I will have very open conversations with them. And as they grow, I pull them aside and have them anyway, so that they can be safe and realize that they, that things happen that look normal, you know, at school or be kind to your friends because you don't know what they're going through at home. And, you know, so I think it's been good to have just regular conversations like that with my kids. Yes. I mean, huge importance, I think, for all of us to just communicate with our kids so that they know that they can come to us and talk to us about anything. You know, we need to be the, the people who they come to so that we can, we can help them through it. Even though I am a huge advocate for friendships and, you know, Mm -hmm. for other people Mm -hmm. in their lives, grandparents or aunts or Mm -hmm. uncles or whatever. But I do think it's really important for, for the parents to let their kids know that they have a place Mm -hmm. to come. If someone out there is listening who is going through something Mm -hmm. and they want help, have you heard through your experiences in working with these different organizations and hearing other people's stories of ways that you can safely get out or, or who do you tell anyone's going through that? Not that we have all the answers here, obviously. Right. No, I, there's a, there's a hotline, um, just a national human trafficking hotline. And they are actually who I would recommend calling and they can help you know what steps you need to take Yes, and, and your options to feel safe and, and be safe. And, and I can give you that number if yes, you want please. right now. I or, would love that. Yes. So it's, um, one 373 So that is a great, a great resource to reach out to if you have any even if you don't, even if you're not the person being trafficked, but if you have questions in regards to trafficking, you can call that hotline and they'll be able to help you as well. Mm-hmm. But if you are being trafficked, or even if you think you might be, that's a great resource. Okay, great. Great resource. I love sharing takeaways with anyone who's listening. Um, I went back to a question that I had written down. It was from one of your podcast interviews and you shared that you created a safe word with your kids, mm-hmm. which, yep. oh, I, I literally, I think I said out loud, oh my gosh, I love that. Like no one was mm-hmm. in the room, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think it's such great advice for all of us parents, because even if they are hanging out with their friends and mm-hmm. if there's an uncomfortable situation or there's or there's friend drama or whatever. I think that the use of a safe word is genius. So tell me about how you came up with that and when you use the safe word. I don't remember how I came up with it, but I remember one of my kids want like nervous about going to a friend's house for I'm I, they don't even really understand why. They were just nervous because it was, you know. And so I sent them with a phone obviously and and I said, you know, if you need anything or if you're uncomfortable and you just want me to come get you, but you're worried about your friend seeing your text, thinking anything bad about you, then just, this is, this is going to be our safe word. And it was, I mean, I'm not going to give you our safe word, but, but I'll make one up and I'll say it's ice cream. So I'll say, Hey, 
mom, can we have ice cream when we get home, when I get home? And I will know that's my code word. And I'll say, sure, that sounds great. And I actually need you home. So I'm going to come grab you right now. And I'll be there in just a few minutes. So tell your friends, sorry, but I actually need you home. So it doesn't make them feel like they have to lie to their friends, but it's like a way that I know that they're just uncomfortable or something and I can go pick them up. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we do. Oh, I I just love it. I mean, honestly, it can be used for anything if they are just tired and they don't want to have their friend take it personally, or if there really is something serious happening and there is any kind of abuse that, you know, they don't want to talk about in front of someone, just using that safe word and getting them home to safety, I thought was, was brilliant. So thank you for that. Yeah. I love takeaways. So in every interview, I ask the same question, but I kind of want to change it up for you being that what we're talking about with you is a very personal story and it's, you'll understand when I ask it. And I think taking into account all that you've been through and and sharing your personal story, I would love to know how you hope to be better tomorrow, how you will be better for yourself and be better for your family. A lot of times when I feel sad or down, I push it aside and say, I'm okay. I'm just going to push through it. And I think I'm going to try to do a better job of acknowledging that and giving it space and being okay that I need some time instead of putting everything that I need on the back burner Mm. and actually just stepping up and and taking care of myself, which I didn't get for years and years and years. So I need to work on that. I'm going to do that better. Yes. Good. I think you should. You deserve it. Just as everyone out there deserves it. In 2016, you started this company, and I would love for you to share how it started and why Hero Bands was born. So I was working through therapy, and it was hard. It was really hard. And I had gone to a craft fair with a friend and and came across this lady selling bracelets that had words on them like inspire and peace and strong and calm and loved. And I was like, Oh, that's nice. I don't know what those feel like, <laughs> Yeah. but I wish I did. Yeah. I want to know what those feel like. So I bought a couple of them and, and started wearing them every day. And I would, I would hold them and rub them and just feel them and try to absorb whatever the word was. And after months of wearing them, they really started helping me. And I would be meeting with people and they would start sharing pieces of their life with me. And I would look down and see that I was wearing a word that they needed way more than I did at that moment. So I would take it off and give it to them. And later they would tell me how much that helped them. And, and as I got healed and, and able to cope and manage life in general, I I knew I was going to share my story somehow. And I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't really want to write a book. I didn't really want to go on podcasts. Mm -hmm. I didn't really want. (laughs) And look where you are now. (laughs) Right. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start this company and words are powerful, Mm. either negative or positive. And if we go to the negative with these words, it can damage us, you know, in a way that we don't even see. So just encouraging the positiveness with it. And so I named it Hero Bands after the heroes in my life that didn't know they were my heroes growing up, but my teacher, my, my rosy little angels that popped up in my life were my heroes. So I named it hero bands and I donate $2 for every item sold to different organizations that help with awareness and 
right now at um, the Elizabeth Smart Foundation and fight the new drug. And I also make bracelets for the kids that are rescued by Operation Underground Railroad. And I'll stamp your initials on those bracelets. So when a kid gets it, they know somebody cares about them and sees them everywhere in the world. And I've seen, I've gotten to go on an aftercare mission with them and seen these kids get them. And it's more than just a bracelet. Sometimes it's the first thing they've owned that's just theirs in their life. And they just treat them with such prized love. It's really been fulfilling to be able to see it all kind of come full circle and, and be able to make an impact on the world in this way. So I'm so grateful for Hero Bands and and the platform it's now given me to help other people be safe and feel loved and seen no matter what they're going through. It can be divorce or or abuse or addiction or depression. Like it can be anything. And I've seen the power that they've had and I'm just grateful to have a little impact on the world. Oh, well, we're grateful for you, for what you're doing for the world. I mean, that is such a beautiful tribute and you're right. I mean, I buy bracelets like that too. And I give them to friends and I, you know, people who are going through different things or myself, I I feel like there is so much power in just a word and an initial, you know, you made me teary, like telling that story about the Operation Underground Railroad where they help a kid escape sex trafficking and then you make them feel loved. So thank you for what you're doing. Where can people go to find more information on Hero Bands? Just herobands.com. I share some of my story on there um, as well. That's hero underscore bands for Instagram. And I forgot to mention this because it's brand new, but I actually just hired my first set of survivors. Oh. And I'm so excited. They, they make beaded bracelets. So you can either buy a band for a survivor or from a survivor. Mm. And they are getting paid so that they don't have to go back into the life of trafficking. So I just got full body chills. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, you should be. That is amazing. Oh, yeah. I just, I'm so thankful that our paths connected or. We'll do some good together, I think. Oh, gosh. It's just incredible what you're doing. I mean, from heartbreak to triumph and and tributes and honoring these people who have helped you and then paying it forward and, and helping other people who need to be given the tools to survive and thrive. I just think that what you're doing is so inspirational and thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We need that human connection. Oh, thank you for having me so much, so much. So, and I told you this last night, I had a, a, one of my guests, Ben Nempton talked about the power of sharing, you know, he talks about sharing his depression story and, Mm. and I really truly feel like there's so much power. It's not for everybody. Totally get it. You don't have to share your story publicly, but I feel like sharing it with someone you feel safe with or a therapist or just writing it down and getting it out, especially if you're able to connect with someone about it, then you don't feel alone. Or you don't feel as alone, I guess. Yeah. And you also welcome those people into your life who may be able to help you in some way. So there's so much power in sharing your story. And I'm just so thankful that you came on Better Etc. to do that. So thank you. Thanks for having me. 